Our message this morning is entitled Christian Servants, and we'll turn back to the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We put our series through 1 Timothy on hold for the last two weeks as we considered the rest that we find in the gospel and the command and the invitation of Christ in Matthew 11 to come unto him and find rest if you are laboring and heavy laden. And last week we considered the prodigal son, the son that went away and took his inheritance and squandered it and was joyfully received back into fellowship by the father. Today we continue our study together through 1 Timothy and we enter into the last chapter of this epistle. We don't have many more messages in this. I think that it's been a very instructive book of the Bible to study together and as far as church Order and structure and the importance of the truth and the gospel and those that teach the Word of God, their qualifications and their work, it's been very instructive to us. We'll read our passages today. Let as many, as, as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine, which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. You might observe from verses 3 through 5 that the Apostle Paul does not mince words. You might read that out loud. He is proud, knowing nothing, doting about questions and strifes of words, and think, Tell us what you really mean, Paul. What is it that you really think about these particular people? He certainly cuts to the quick as it were. He shoots straight. He doesn't give any opportunity to misunderstand what he says. He isn't vague. He isn't nebulous. But he is to the point. And we would do well to emulate that and all of our respective ministries to say what we think and say what we mean, say what the Word of God says, to let our yea be yea and our nay be nay. Our passages today touch on a very sensitive topic to us, especially in the United States of America following the Civil War, that of servitude or slavery. And as we introduce this topic to you, we want to up front say that we approach this with gravity and we approach this with all sensitivity and respect and we want to simply present what the Word of God says to us. Now as we introduce the concept of servants, this is something that you find in both Testaments. You find this throughout the Bible. It's something that Scripture speaks about. Scripture gives guidelines for how to approach this, how to handle this, how to deal with this. I want this thought to exist in your mind today under the umbrella of biblical counsel 
for operating under a broken system. So if you write notes, that might be a good thing to write down. Biblical counsel for operating under a broken system. Christianity often bursts into corrupted, broken systems in the world, granting reform and liberty and freedom. For instance, if you contrast what the Bible says about the dignity and worth and liberty and responsibilities that a wife has in the home, and you contrast that with the way that men in the first century treated women as property, maybe one step above cattle, you'll see that Scripture was liberating to women. You are a human being made in the image of God, and you have rights, and you are deserved certain things, and your husband should never mistreat you. That was liberating to the first century woman. Christianity bursts into a broken system, and it grants freedom, and it reforms the world around it. Or perhaps a better word would be that it transforms the word around it, because that's the word that Paul used in the book of Romans chapter 12, that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds as we hear the word of God over and over and over. There's a transformative process on us as individuals, and because there's a transformative process on us as individuals, and because the gospel grows in the world, in the cultures in which it is preached, the, tr the cultures of the world begin to be transformed by the preaching of the cross. The preaching of the cross influences the world around us. Now, there are people that might even deny that, but if you just look at the fundamental makeup of the United States itself, can we not see the influence of the Word of God in our culture around us from the very framing of our culture until our very day? We find that the law of our land reflects the law that God gave Moses and the moral commands of the, particularly the Ten Commandments, but we also find biblical principles such as the liberty of conscience, the ownership of property, the fact that men should answer for their crimes, and the fact that they shouldn't be mistreated even when they answer for their crimes. We find all of this in the Word of God, and it's reflected in our society. The preaching of the gospel has impacted human culture. And so, as we think about this subject today, that of servitude, or the institution in the first century, what it was in this day of slavery, which will contrast this with, with the institution as it was in the United States. We want to just insist that the commands of God and the gospel and Christianity interjects itself into the world's broken systems, and the world around us is transformed. To speak to that, in other words, the Bible advises us how to handle situations, but at the same time, it doesn't necessarily endorse the situation. So Scripture right here speaks about how servants are to respond to the institution that they are under, which was legal and lawful according to the laws of man in that day, but that doesn't mean that the Bible endorses the institution. And that is a very important point that needs to be made as we read through the New Testament and the Old Testament and we come to laws that have to do with servitude. The Bible teaches how to behave in that system, but it doesn't, it doesn't condone or endorse that system. 
We see this in many arenas in the Word of God. You see this in the arena of finding a spouse. The Bible is a book of such longevity in terms of when it was written that there were times that men chose a wife by simply choosing a wife. There were times in the Bible where men were espoused to their wife. And so you have things such as courtship. You have things such as espousals. In our day and time today, we have the common way of finding a spouse, which is dating. Now, sometimes people read in the Old Testament or some of these stories of men who courted their wives before they married their wife, and they say, well, that must mean that the Bible endorses courtship. And so to marry a person, you have to court with them. And what they mean by court with them is that you have to go to their parents' house, young men, you have to go to the, the woman's house and sit on her father's couch and talk with her father, and that's date night on Friday night. And every time you're with your potential spouse, you go and you sit on the parent's couch in the living room and for however period of a time that is, and finally you ask the parents' permission to marry the daughter, and then you go and you get married, and that was the entire relationship up until your marriage. You think, you're being absurd. No, there are people who have published Christian books that said, that is what God would have you to do. And then when everyone is 35 and wondering why they're single, they wonder why they're 35 and why they're single. Might I suggest that the Bible doesn't enforce one style of choosing a spouse over another. People were espoused in the Bible. Now, what if I were to take a spousal and say, see, that's what God intends. Young women, young men, for your mom and dad to get together with another mom and dad and enter into an agreement for a certain number of goats and cows and pigs and sheep and land... And that becomes how you obtain your spouse. Thanks, mom and dad. Not so much. That was the culture of the day. And scripture spoke to how to be a good wife and a good husband in that culture in that day. Like it did in the day when courtship was more common. Like it would in a day like today when dating is more common. What is dating? What do I mean by that? I mean that you ask a girl out and you go to a movie and you behave yourself while you go out to a movie, but you go out to a movie and you eat and then you go home. That's what I mean by dating, and it's how most people in this day and age obtain their spouse. Is dating wrong? No, as long as dating is under the framework of biblical principles and morality and modesty and honesty and every other thing. And so Scripture doesn't endorse one system over another. It interjects itself into the system and applies its transforming power. Another example would be that of government. In the Bible times, there were governments that are interacted with by the people of God that were monarchies. And in the case when the government was a monarchy, guess what God's people were told? Don't be a rebel. Obey magistrates. Obey the powers that be. Be respectful, honor those that have the rule over you. But there were also people that lived under the system that was more democratic. And what were they taught? By that I mean democracy. Well, they're taught to honor and respect those that have power over you. And they're taught to be respectful. And they're taught to obey magistrates. And they're taught to pay their taxes and to give tribute to whom tribute is due. You see, Scripture gives us principles for everyday life, regardless of the cultural frameworks that are around us. And so, much like with different types of government, much like with different types of finding a spouse, the Bible gives us principles 
to apply to our lives, even if we find ourselves under the framework of first century servitude or slavery. Now, concerning slavery or servitude, I have a lot of introductory remarks to give to you about the institution. We'll probably say more about the institution itself than we say about these passages themselves. And I think it's important to understand. And you know that our MO is to take a passage, to take a principle, to take a subject, and what is it that we want to do as quickly as we can? We want to run to the cross. Right? How many times have I said that in this series through 1 Timothy? You'll find that even in studying the concept of servitude, as with every other concept in this book, you can take a subject matter such as this and run as quickly as you can to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there are lessons to be learned even in this about our redemption and about our Savior. And so we want to leave that thought in your mind as we begin to look at this passage. Now, as we consider the institution itself, let me just be very clear that Paul does not condone slavery, especially not and certainly not slavery as it was in the early United States. What we read of in the first century church and the servitude that was in that century was not the type of servitude that existed in the early United States. How do you know that? How can you say that? He's talking about slaves. He's talking about servants. How do you know that Paul would condemn slavery as it existed in the United States in its inception up until the middle of the 19th century? How do you know that Paul would condemn this? Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. We've already studied through this passage of Scripture. If you recall the message about the purpose of the law and how the law is good if it's used lawfully. The purpose of the law, one of the purposes, is to condemn iniquity and wickedness in the world. It's the purpose of the laws of the United States. It's the purpose of the law of God. Laws exist to persecute, to punish, I should say, to avenge, to execute judgment on evildoers. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient. How does he define lawlessness and disobedience? For the ungodly and for sinners. How does he define ungodliness and sinfulness? For unholy and profane. How does he define unholiness or being profane? He begins to get more specific. For murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. Sounds pretty gruesome, doesn't it? For manslayers. For whoremongers, that is to say those who are sexually immoral. For them that defile themselves with mankind has reference to homosexuality. For men-stealers and for liars, perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. What is a men-stealer? And how does this relate to the institution of slavery? The word men-stealer literally means a slave trader. A men-stealer, a man-stealer, is a slave trader. We would refer to them in our present time as what? Human traffickers. The Bible condemns human trafficking. And this word men-stealers literally had reference to those who engaged in the slave trade. 
And so when a slave trader reads a Pauline epistle, what does he read? He reads that God condemns the practice of men stealing. Now, there were many other ways that a person became a slave in the first century, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But from the onset of today's message, let it be known, let it be emphatically declared that the Word of God calls slavery, as it was on this continent, a sin. How many of us are familiar with the hymn Amazing Grace? We love that. There's not one of us in the room that doesn't know Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The man who penned those words was a human trafficker, was a slave trader, was a men-stealer. And he became so overwhelmed with conviction when God's grace arrested him for his participation in that industry that he went on to pen those words. When he spoke about his wretchedness, grace that saved a wretch like me, he had primary reference to the fact that he was indeed a men-stealer. Some of the greatest champions in our country for the abolition of slavery were those who preached the pure gospel of Christ. It was something that I'm ashamed to say that there were Christians who preached the gospel in this country that believed it was okay to do that. And it was wrong. Scripture says it is wrong. Men stealing is a sin. As far as Paul's mentioning of this, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of double or excuse me of all honor that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed brings to mind the consistent biblical principle, manifestation of an ages-old biblical principle that we ought to respect authority. Now, this was an authority that was a shame in the world. And the last point that we make today is how Christianity and the gospel eradicates slavery. How Paul's doctrine eradicates slavery. But in the meantime, as the institution was in the world, Paul instructs that if you find yourself in that institution as a servant, to have respect, to deal with those that are in positions of authority over you with respect and gravity and honor. He would tell the same thing to people regarding government. He would tell the same thing to church members regarding their local assembly. He would tell the same thing to wives in the home and husbands to their Lord Christ. We are to be respectful persons in the world. We already talked about this in rebuke not an elder but entreat him as a father. And how respect is something that is so lost in our day of social media. Do you think people respect each other today? Do you think a young man, on average, sees the hoary head, as it were, the gray-headed man, and he looks at him and immediately has respect for him on account of his age? No, it's not a part of our country today. And older people are just as guilty of it as younger people. Why? How do I know that? Because I'm friends with a lot of older people on Facebook, too. And I can tell you that even all up to the very highest office in this land... As it relates to social media activity, people are not respectful anymore. And the Bible calls on the Christian, calls on the Christian to be a respectful person. 
It's a struggle that we all have. We can hide behind the internet and social media or anonymity and disrespect those that are around us. Children, I want you to understand, God calls on you to respect your parents. And all of us are called upon to respect the powers that be. Romans 13. Wives, respect your husbands. Husbands, love your wives while respecting your Lord. We're called on to be respectful. And so this principle bleeds over into the institution of servitude. And so Paul says, for servants to count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And again, I have to reiterate the point. This isn't condoning the institution. It's teaching disciples how to exist under the institution. Now, servitude in Bible times was far more vast and diverse both vast and diverse, than it was in the early United States. And I hate that I have to continually clarify that. But I have to continually clarify that. Because that's probably the greatest struggle and the greatest shame in our country's history. It was so great. Look at the, look at the devastation that it has caused and the lasting effects of that in our culture. It wasn't okay, and there's no excuse for it. And it still affects us negatively until this very day. We still very much bear the scars from that. But in the first century, the economies of Greece and Rome, and even as far back into the Egyptian empire, were based on slave labor. How do you think those pyramids got there? They didn't hire local construction company to build the pyramids. Built them with slave labor. It was so vast, this is from Holman Bible Dictionary, that when Paul wrote this epistle, one in three people in Italy were slaves. One in three human beings in Italy was a slave. Did you know that? That's staggering, is it not? We ought to say immediately, just right here and right now, thank you, dear God, that we were born into a free land. We're born free. Paul mentions that in the book of Acts. There was a man he was interacting with, and he says that with great price have I purchased my freedom. And Paul says, I was born free. Why was that impressive? We were all born free in America because not everyone was born free in first century Rome. One in three people in Italy was a slave. The Roman Empire was built. Their economy was sustained through the institution of slavery. Elsewhere, outside of Italy, one in five people were slaves outside of Italy. Could you imagine if one-third of the people you knew were slaves? That's the way that it was in Rome. And what does Paul say to them? Respect those that are your masters. You're a Christian. You're not to be a disrespectful, loose cannon of a rebel. Now, if you're thinking, this is really convicting to me, I really don't appreciate any of this at all, how do you think I feel as a Winslet? Because if you know anything about my family, anything at all about my family, you know, we dare defend our rights. This is convicting to me. Because we're raised to look you square in the eyeball and go nose to nose, eye to eye. 
we're, we're not people who want to take a knee in front of someone. One in five elsewhere, one in three in Italy was a slave. These slaves might work in fields. They might work in mines. They might work as civil servants. Some were forced to participate in the battles to the death that were engaged in by the gladiators. In other words, they would be forced to be gladiators. When you look at that giant remnant of the arena, the Colosseum in Rome, just think about that. It was a place where for the entertainment of the elite and the wealthy in Rome, slaves were forced to kill each other for entertainment. We lose sight of that in our day. You read Psalm 73, which laments how powerful and rich the wicked become in this world and how they afflict and persecute God's children so many times. And we lose sight of that because of all the freedoms we have, the right to self-defense. You're not going to force me into a coliseum and make me kill somebody. I have the right to defend myself, even from one who would force me to do that in this country. Thank God for this country and for our freedoms. The bigger, stronger slaves many times were forced to fight to the death with other people. Now, as far as how a person would become a slave, I already said that Paul condemns men stealing. Sometimes men became slaves because they lost a war and they were captured in war. You see this in the book of Daniel. Daniel and his Hebrew friends, these young men, they were Israelites, they were serving God, the Babylonians, because the Israelites had been so rebellious. God says, I'm taking away the hedge. You're going away into captivity for 70 years. You will serve in captivity. What do you think that word serve had reference to? You're going to be servants in the king of Babylon's palace. They were slaves. Daniel and his Hebrew friends were taken in war. They were sieged and they were slaves. As I was studying this this week, the thought kept coming to mind how easy we have it as American citizens. Dear God, we have it so easy. It was commonplace everyday life in this day and age to have everything you know threatened by the next rising empire. And if you weren't defending your empire, you were being attacked by another empire. If you weren't spreading your empire, you were being attacked by another empire. It was a brutal, cruel, painful life. Some people became slaves because they were defeated in military. Some people became slaves because they borrowed money that they could not pay back. And I brought this to your attention so many times here. What if, if you took money from Redstone Federal Credit Union to buy a car or a house and you defaulted on that, you became the slave of the owner of Redstone Federal Credit Union? How much less likely would we be to sign our names on that mortgage 
or that car payment or that credit card. If I had to become the slave of Visa MasterCard, I don't think I'd be borrowing money to buy stuff that I didn't need. And, and I mean, like, if it's not food, if it's not shelter, if it's not clothing, I'm not spending, I'm not signing my name away because I don't want to default on that and become a slave. When Solomon wrote in the Proverbs, the buyer is servant unto the lender, the borrower is servant unto the lender, rather. That wasn't proverbial, as we would call it. That wasn't poetic language. Solomon is saying, if you go into debt and you can't pay that debt, you become the servant to the lender. You become the slave of the lender. There were many people who were servants because they borrowed money they could not pay back. Jesus uses this as one of his parables. He talks about a man that owed a little to a man who owed someone else a lot. And the man who owed a lot was forgiven because he begged his master, the, the wealthy person, and turns around and grabs a man by the throat who owes him little. And for treating him that way, when the man that he owed finds out, he dealt very harshly with him and delivered him to the tormentors. This was an everyday part of life. You borrow money, you can't pay it back, you become a slave of the person who you borrowed money from. Some people would become slaves because they were sold by destitute parents. That one is heartbreaking to think about. Parents are so poor they're starving to death so they sell their child into servitude so they can eat and so their child won't starve to death. Life in this place is so very cruel because of sin. Think, these are, all, these are all the ramifications of sin. This is the price of sin in the world. Some people were slaves because they were born to slaves. They were born into slavery. This is very familiar to us in our day and age. Some people were slaves because they were convicted of a crime. And so they were forced into servitude because they were convicted of a crime. Some people were slaves because they were kidnapped. That would be the men-stealing that Paul had reference to. Or they were abducted by pirates. We're often entertained by pirates of the Caribbean. You know, it's, it's patches and peg legs and sword and parrots, but there were real pirates that would board vessels, steal the crew... Steal the vessel, steal the cargo, and that was what they did. And there were many victims of that. Many times they became slaves, and that's what Paul condemns as men stealing. Now here's one that's interesting. There were many slaves who became slaves voluntarily. Why on earth would you want to give over your freedom? Because when the alternative is starvation and homelessness, after a period of prolonged starvation and homelessness, there were men and women who said, I, will be, I would rather be the slave, the servant, in a kind, wealthy man's home than I would starve to death. And so there were people who volunteered for servitude. 
That's shocking, is it not? Now here's something interesting from the law that God gave to the children of Israel. There were even laws that God gave to servants, bond servants, servants where when you borrow money, you can't pay it back, you have to work until the debt is paid. There were laws that God gave Israel for a servant who once the debt was paid, didn't want to leave. How to become a permanent servant of that household. In other words, the system of abuse was not there. Let's say we're all familiar, we're in a comic book infatuated society today, right? Have you ever seen Batman? Who is Batman's servant? Alfred. So let's say Alfred says, I love Bruce Wayne. If you didn't know that was who Batman is, I'm sorry, spoilers. I really love Bruce Wayne. I don't want to leave Wayne Manor. Let me just be your servant forever. And so God gave provision in the law where you could take his ear and bore a hole through his ear into the post of the door of the house, and you would be a permanent slave, a servant of the person, voluntarily a permanent servant of your wealthy master. We live in such a different world today in so many ways that that would even be a consideration. Some people were voluntarily servants. Sometimes masters freed slaves in their will or even before their death because they cared for them. And so in their will, they would say, I free him instead of giving him to someone else or being inherited by one of his children. Some slaves that were judicious, they would work for money, they would save their money, and they would buy their own freedom. For instance, the man that Paul spoke to in the book of Acts, he had bought his freedom. With great price, he had purchased his liberty. Slaves could purchase their liberty. And if you became a slave through debt, when you paid the debt off, you could go free. But even there were people who were born into that institution that could purchase their own freedom. Unlike the early United States, or at times like when the Hebrews were in Egypt or the Jews were in Babylon... Slavery in the first century was in all nationalities and all races. It wasn't that one race was enslaved. Now, there were times when one race has been enslaved. And there have been times when many individual races have been enslaved. In the early United States, when Israel was in Egypt, there was a race that was enslaved. But in Paul's day, it was broad. It was across the board. Every type of man all nationalities and races, they were involved in that institution. Now let's run as quickly as we can to the cross, okay? Studying servitude in the Bible times helps us understand important biblical concepts because slavery was often used as a metaphor for the forces that have control over us. What do you mean the forces that have control over us? What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? No man can serve two masters. What's that word serve have reference to? It has reference to slavery. What does the word master have reference to? It has reference to slavery. You cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus would come back and say, what is mammon? Mammon is money. Did you know that money is a slave to some people? That will be the next thought that we share from 1 Timothy. Or excuse me, some people are a slave to money. Money is a master to some people. 
Some people are servants to mammon, money. But more importantly than that, we were, according to the book of Romans chapter 6, the servants of sin. The concept of redemption is the concept of slavery. You were a redeemed what? You were a redeemed slave. Every single one of us was at one time in our life a slave to the master sin. You were a slave. I was a slave. Sold into slavery by our father, Adam. Did you pay attention when I was saying how people could become slaves? Either because they took out a loan that they could not pay, Adam, a debt he couldn't pay, or they voluntarily sold themselves, Adam, in the Garden of Eden, or, like every single one of us, born into it. We were born into slavery to sin. Every single human being is conceived, is born into servitude to sin. Paul said in Romans 7, I am carnal, sold under sin. Why would he say sold under sin? Sold how? To whom? As a slave to the master of sin. However, the Lamb of God, our priest, our Savior, has redeemed us from sin and the penalty of the law. He bought us back redeemed, He redeemed us as slaves to sin through the price of the shedding of His own blood. And so whereas we once belonged unto the master sin, we now belong to a new master, Christ. Now let me just say this. Christ did not buy you back so that you have the rights to yourself. We are bought with a price that we might serve our new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, freedom from sin is not for our own selfishness. Freedom of sin is for the purpose of serving the Lord Jesus Christ, our master. What a wonderful master he is. And it's not to say that he doesn't give us liberty and freedom in our lives. He gives us so much to enjoy. But we are very much his bought servants. Paul goes as far as to use this as an analogy. You've been freed from your old master. Why serve your dead master when your new master is so gloriously kind? Freedom from sin. Freedom from that bondage. To serve under the light yoke of Christ. This is why Bible writers refer to themselves so often as the servants of Christ. Romans chapter 1, Paul says he's the servant of Christ. Peter introduces himself in his epistles as the servant of Christ. James introduces himself in his epistle as the servant of Christ. Jude refers to himself in his epistle as the servant of Christ. These men are saying, I am the slave of Jesus. 
I'm the servant of Jesus. I obey Him. I serve Him. I work for Him. I love Him. And as the old law had given provision, I want the the auger to be bored through my ear. I don't ever want to depart from the house of Christ. But I want to be in His house forever. I want to be a slave to Christ. A servant of Christ. Now let's quickly go through these four verses. And I said I'll say a lot about the institution and very little about the verses because they're self-explanatory. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. That's the device that is placed upon an ox that connects it to a plow and it implies work. Let as many masters as are under the yoke count their own, or excuse me, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor. You respect them, you Honor them that the name of God and His doctrine be not blasphemed, that is to say, spoken evil of. If I am not the Christian I ought to be, and this concept applies to marriage, it applies to various topics in the world. If I am not the Christian I ought to be, the Word of God will be blasphemed. His doctrine will be blasphemed. Others will see and speak evil of the calls of Christ. What did Nathan the prophet tell David when he sinned with Bathsheba? Of all the things that you've done, David, you gave reason for the enemies of God to blaspheme. Our concern for God's name ought to be chief, for His glory, for His honor in the world. We don't want to bring reproach upon the cause. They that have believing masters, let them not despise them. Because they are brethren. Now this is how Christianity bursts into a broken system. You've got a master, you've got servants, and all of a sudden Christianity comes into the area and men are converted. The gospel impacts them. Now you have master and servant who believe. What do you do with that? Scripture speaks to that. And I'm going to show you how it even eradicates the institution in just a moment. You want to respect them because they are brethren. Even above the principle of authority in the world is the principle of brotherly love. And Paul would write in various epistles to servants and to masters, instructing them to honor each other and to love each other. He would even tell the masters, you need to know that you have a master in heaven. And so treat those that are in servitude to you as you would want to be treated by your master. Transforms institutions of human life. Do them service, Paul says, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. What benefit? The grace that you have received, so have they. These things teach and exhort, Timothy. Teach your congregation this, Timothy. If you are a servant with a believing master, do them service because you belong to the same Lord, you're actually brothers. Now this applies to servants and masters. You can apply this very same principle to your employee-employer relationship. This applies to all of us. Employee-employer relationships. Paul says, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, he describes him as proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions of stripes and words. There are a lot of teachers in the world that are proud, they know nothing, and they dote about questions of strifes and words. What does it mean to dote? Have you ever been accused of doting? 
don't think that's a word that you use every day. So what does it mean? The word means to be sick, morbid, and it actually is used as a metaphor for the mind. And so one who dotes about would be someone who is deranged or morbidly infatuated with something that is not right. An incorrect, morbid infatuation. Those who deny biblical authority and respect are proud know-nothings who are morbidly obsessed with questions of strifes and words, wherein cometh envy and strife and railings and all of these other terrible things. In other words, God wants us to be respectful people. Now, concerning the institution itself, this is the final point for today. How say you, Christian, that Christianity and the gospel eradicates slavery and servitude? For that, I turn to the book of Philemon. Now, this is a very short epistle. It's only 25 verses long, and I'm not going to read it for you. I'm just going to give you the gist of the story. Paul is imprisoned. You see that in verse 1. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's with Timothy, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. Philemon is a Christian. There is a church in Philemon's house, verse 2, indicating that he perhaps was an elder, perhaps a minister. There is a church meeting in his home. Philemon has an escaped slave named... You can read it down in... And I'm going to tell you the pun that is based on his name, Onesimus, verse 10. Onesimus is an escaped slave. His name means profitable. And yet, instead of being profitable, Onesimus belonged to Philemon, and he had stolen from him and escaped. Now, we don't know if he was a bond servant. That's the implication of the fact that he owed Philemon something. He was a servant because Philemon had loaned him money. Onesimus could not pay it back. And so Onesimus runs and flees. And that makes him a thief. By the way, the penalty of that was death. Philemon could have had Onesimus executed. Onesimus comes to the Apostle Paul. He meets him. For whatever reason, we're not quite sure. But we know in verse 10 that Paul has begotten him in his bonds. That means that Paul has converted him. He has been begotten as a disciple of Christ through the preaching of Paul. How does Paul's teaching eradicate slavery? First of all, Paul instructs Onesimus to make things right. In other words, we are not rebels. You go back to him... You make it right. Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon with this letter. Whom I have sent again, verse 12. He wasn't profitable in past times, but now profitable to thee and me, verse 11. Even though, as his name is profitable, he was unprofitable. Now he's profitable to both of us. Why? Because he is a Christian. I sent him again. Thou therefore receive him, that is, my own bowels. Receive him as if he were my own child. Whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. In other words, I could have kept him so he could have helped me in my labors. 
But without thy mind I do nothing that thy benefit should not be as it were necessity, but willingly. In other words, Paul says, I'm not going to let this stand. We've got to make it right. I'm sending it back. I know that it was wrong. We're not lawbreakers. And so he sends Onesimus back to make it right. What does he exhort Philemon, the master? This is how the first century church began to eradicate the institution of slavery. Perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou shouldest receive him forever. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother, specially to me. But how much more unto thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. He was once your servant, but now you're all believers and he's a believer. And so now you shouldn't view him as a servant. You should view him above a servant as a brother beloved. Begs the question, how could I have a servant and treat him as a servant if we're brothers in Christ? You see how slavery begins to be eradicated through this region, through the preaching of the gospel? If thou count me therefore a partner... Receive him as myself. Do you think Philemon would enslave the apostle Paul? No. Paul goes on. If he hath wronged thee or oweth thee aught, put that on mine account. Whatever he owed you, I now owe you. If he hath wronged thee, put that on my account. Listen. I, Paul, have written it with mine own hand, telling us that he didn't use a scribe to write this as he did many of his epistles. He wrote this with his own hand, his own handwriting and signature. I have written it. I will repay it. I will pay you whatever he owes you because I love him. I love you. He's sorry for what he's done. We'll make this right. I will pay it. Can you see Paul stepping in the position of Jesus in this passage? To pay the debt of a runaway slave. It's exactly what Jesus did for every single one of you. I do not say to thee how thou owest unto me even thine own self besides. In other words... You're a Christian because I converted you. If anybody owes anybody, maybe you should owe me. Yea, brother, let me have joy of thee in the Lord. Refresh my bowels, my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in thy obedience, I wrote unto thee, knowing that thou wilt also, listen to this, do more than I say. I've exhorted you to receive him as a brother, and I'll pay the debt and treat him kindly, even though he deserves death. But I think, Onesimus, or I think, Philemon, when you receive this letter, you're going to do more to Onesimus even than what I have commanded you. What is he implying? I call on you to let him free so that he could serve his new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is said that Paul's approach eventually calls the end of slavery as an institution in that region, in that era of time. Why? 
Because you don't view people as property and you don't view people as debtors. How do you view people? You view them as brothers.